The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. To his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers by the Kids Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in Children's Church, Please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thanks. Good morning. My name is Mark. Uh, I am not on staff here, but when there's no one else, they let me play guitar and preach here. So, uh, Now, we, we are joyful to call this place our church home. My family and I am really proud that we belong to a church whose leadership joyfully lets uh, its pastor take some time off in the summer. I can say this, I don't know if someone on staff could get away with it, but like pastors are all tired <laughs> because they don't get to, you don't get to kind of switch it off at five o'clock at night. Uh, and so thank you for giving the Huffin family some time to, to breathe and rest and be with each other. Um, this summer, you guys have been going through a list of character traits that the Bible calls the fruit of the spirit. And if you're not familiar with that, it's just a list of virtues that the Bible says you will grow in if you're in Christ, if you're following Jesus. Christianity claims that if you put your faith and your confidence in Jesus, then you are united to him by faith. Uh, And that union is the source of tremendous change in you. Not only by your union with Christ are you forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future, but you now have the Holy Spirit in you, and it's a source of tremendous change in you. And so it's just like a tree that has been transplanted from a dry and rocky and dusty place where it's just withering. When you unite to Christ and you have the Spirit, it's like you're being transplanted from that into this lush garden right by a river 
with tons of water and sunlight. Uh, and so you will start to grow fruit that you otherwise would not have grown. Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus' famous parable, the Good Samaritan, where Jesus tells a story about what it means to be good and just how good God is. If you weren't here, I'd highly recommend you check that sermon out. We had a wonderful guest preacher come last week and joking, it was me. You're stuck with me one more week and then it goes back to normal. So in all seriousness, if you've been visiting this week or last week and you're like, I don't like this place, everything's great, but the preacher, that'll change next week. So come back and don't, don't, don't tick it off the box just yet. Um, this morning, the fruit of the spirit we're gonna focus on is faithfulness. Galatians 5, Paul says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the question we're asking today is, what does faithfulness look like? What does Jesus say it means to be faithful? And what I want to pitch at you this morning is that if we don't have a correct view of how how good God is and how loving he is, and if we don't have an accurate view for just God's infinite love for his people, then it's going to be really difficult for us to grow in faithfulness. Without a right view of God's goodness and love and grace and mercy, we'll be stagnant in our faithfulness. Okay? Uh, So let me pray, and then we'll jump into the parable. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us because you love us and you want us to know who you are. And so would you just remove any obstacles in our minds this morning, any confusions, any screaming children from the nursery that we're worried about? They're great over there. They'll take care of them. Let us focus on you, and let us see you crystal clear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a difficult passage, isn't it? Uh, And it's especially difficult if we read it in the same way that we watch the movie The Sixth Sense, the Bruce Willis movie. If you haven't seen it yet, I'm not even going to apologize for ruining it because it came out in like 1999. You've had plenty of time to watch this movie. Uh, But it's such a great movie because all throughout it, it's following this kid. And what can the kid do? You can talk to me. He can see ghosts. He can see dead people, right? And it's pretty terrifying. Uh, But he can talk and interact with them. And a lot of them look like they're just normal people. So it's kind of hard to distinguish the dead people from the alive people. And Bruce Willis plays this child psychologist. He's kind of walking along with his kid through this terrifying reality of talking to ghosts. But at the end of the movie, there's a huge twist, right? What's, what's the twist? Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. It's amazing. Everybody was talking about it when they first came out and for years afterwards. I realize this is like 24, 23 years ago. Uh, but everybody's talking about it. And once you knew the ending, if you're unfortunate, one of those people who knew the ending before you watched it, it's kind of ruined. But uh, once you knew the ending, it completely changed how you view the rest of the movie, didn't it? Because you start watching, you're like, oh, nobody ever talks to Bruce Willis. Nobody ever interacts with him because he's a ghost. Uh, all that to say, it's a roundabout way of saying that I, I want us to read this parable not the way that we watch the movie The Sixth Sense. Um, as sh- because the ending of this parable, as shocking as it is, it should not affect how we read the first part of it. And that may not make it probably doesn't make sense right now, but just kind of keep that in mind as we're going along. We're going to break this into two parts this morning. One, what does the parable even mean? And two, what is Jesus saying in it about faithfulness? So what does this parable even mean? And what does faithfulness mean from this parable? So one, what does it mean? And I'll just be totally upfront and honest. I don't know if you're supposed to do this as a pastor, but I never understood this parable until this past week when I spent a lot of time on it. Uh, it's always 
it's always kind of scared me. I, it's always confused me. I've never really known. It seems really harsh. But as usual, Jesus uses really vivid language to kind of wake us up and show us the beauty of the gospel. All right, so verse one. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to them his property. What's the it and who is the man? And these two are actually pretty easy. If, you, if you've got your Bible open in front of you, just earlier in chapter 25, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew's gospel especially, we see Jesus telling all these parables and most of them are about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom gonna look like? And in Matthew 24, just a chapter before in verse 14, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And later in verse 27, Jesus says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's what Jesus tended to call himself, the Son of Man. Verse 44 says, therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And then finally, verse 45, this one really leads into our parable this morning. Jesus says, And who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? He says, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So that's the end of Matthew 24. And then where we are in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is still talking about the kingdom coming, specifically the return of King Jesus to bring his kingdom in full. So in verse 14, where it says, for it will be like a man going on a journey, it is referring to the second coming of Jesus, right? when Jesus returns to put all things to right. And we can't spend a ton of time unpacking this this morning, but if this, if this is new to you, you're visiting here and that sounds completely foreign, uh, I would really encourage you to find someone and, and talk to them about it. This is a core belief of Christians that Jesus comes back that there will be a day, and Jesus is very clear that no one knows when that day is. No one can kind of predict it based on signs or who's president or whatever else. But there will be a day when Jesus returns. Uh, If you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it's an old, very old, like 1,500 years old document kind of distilling the, the beliefs of Christians. And as many denominations and branches of Christianity as there are, everyone can pretty much agree on what the Apostles' Creed says. And one of the lines says that Jesus will come back physically, visibly. So again, if that sounds new to you or bizarre to you, if you're investigating Christianity, please find someone to talk to about that. Um, the, the Christian hope hinges on Jesus returning to fix things. It's a beautiful promise we have that things won't always be this way. It's why Tolkien's book, his last one in The Lord of the Rings, what's it called? Return of the King. Yes, a bunch of Tolkien nerds in here. This is great. Uh, and it's what it's it's this huge kind of crescendo because when Aragorn takes the throne, there's finally peace throughout the land. In this land that has been wrecked by evil, the king takes his throne and there's peace. All right, so this parable is about Jesus and it's about when Jesus returns. What do we learn about the man in this parable? And again, don't let the ending influence how you view this man. This is not an M. Night Shyamalan movie with some huge twist at the end. Jesus, he's very intentionally telling the parable in this specific way. So verse 14, Jesus says that this man entrusted his property to these servants. So the man, he's not some mid-level manager, kind of with people under him, but he's really just using the big boss's stuff. This is the guy. He's entrusting his own personal property to these guys. And when he leaves, he trusts his servants to take care of it. 
He's not micromanaging them. He's not laying out a detailed list of what he expects uh, and how they should do their job. He trusts them. And so in verse 15, it says, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. And a talent here, it's an amount of money. Uh, it's actually a pretty big amount of money. It's like 16, 17, some people think it's 20 years wages for a normal kind of a little above minimum wage worker. So even to the guy who he only gives one talent for someone who makes like $40,000 a year, that's like six or $700,000. That's to the lowest of his own money that he entrusts with this guy. It's a ton of money. And to the others, he just, he hands a fortune to them, the five and two talent people. So he entrusts them with a ton of money. And another detail we saw in verse 15 is that he gave each of them uh, each according to their ability. In other words, he knows these guys, right? He knows them well enough to know what they can handle and what they can't handle, what they'll be overwhelmed with. He's not calling them five times a day, checking in on them. He's not making them kind of fill out timesheets or keep extensive detailed records. He trusts them with large amounts of money. And as we see in verse 19, he leaves for a long time. I mean, has anybody else here had a boss that they didn't quite jive with? <laughs> I think everybody's hand might go up if you've ever worked. Uh, anyone who has a boss who's a micromanager, right, who gave you responsibilities, but then spent a lot of time telling you how to do those responsibilities. And if you didn't do them exactly the way they wanted to, they'd spend even more time telling you how to do it again. Not that I've ever had a boss like that, but I can imagine that that might be what it is. Uh, but it's horrible, isn't it? What's also horrible is when your boss gives you way too much work. It just, it overwhelms you. You're working nights, you're working weekends just to kind of keep your head above water. It's awful. And I think equally awful is when you don't give, you're not given enough work, when your boss doesn't trust you and you just kind of feel guilty, you're twiddling your thumbs, uh, you feel underutilized, undervalued. A good boss who trusts you to do your work and gives you an appropriate amount of work for your skill level, that's rare, isn't it? And if you've ever had the pleasure of working for a boss like that, you're probably happier than most Americans, I would think. This man in the parable, he seems like a really good boss, doesn't he? He knows his people, he trusts his people, and he gives them each appropriate workloads. Sounds like a good boss to me. I look back at verse 19. It said, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the guy who he, the man gave two talents comes forward. And he says, Look, I've made two more talents. And what does the boss say? The exact same thing, right? I love this. He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So without knowing what happens in the third interaction with the third guy, if all you knew about this master is how he treated them and how he trusted them before he left and how he interacted with the first two, how would you describe this guy? Good boss, right? He's nice, he's generous, uh, he's trusting. He knows his people, he's very affirming. And to top it all off, the real reward that he gives these guys is the invitation to enter into the joy of the master, right? He gives these two guys a fortune. Uh, to quote the modern day theologian, Jay-Z, they're not just rich, they're wealthy, right? That's a paraphrase, this is church. Uh, 
But the real reward is to be in an intimate relationship with the master, with Jesus. He basically says to them, you have been faithful. Come be with me. Come experience the joy of a relationship with me. So the first two guys were faithful. What does that look like? Well, in verse 16, you see the high achiever, right? We know people like this. It says, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. This is the guy or gal who is just always on top of things. They get their work done early. They help out with other projects at at work. uh, They do the extra credit at school. They do the Christmas shopping in October. They wake up at five in the morning to go run or go to the gym. They didn't have to do what I did this year and file an extension for their taxes so they wouldn't get busted by the IRS. This is the high achieving man or woman who has got all their ducks in a row, right? And that applies to a lot of people here. And there, a lot of you are kind of five talent people. Thankfully for the rest of us, there's the guy who only gets two talents. Uh, he says in the text simply, verse 17, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. This person was a little slower, a little more cautious. They took some time to figure out what to do. Maybe he was the introvert who kind of thought about every possible scenario before acting on it. Uh, maybe tried a few things, made a few mistakes. This is not the five talent man or woman, but they took what was entrusted to them and they were faithful. They did what they could. And it's so beautiful that the master gives these two people the exact same response. Right? He doesn't look at the first one and be like, you are my star employee, you are so good and kind of look over the second guy and be like, yeah, you're fine too. I guess you can come in. No, he, he, is, he is just as congratulatory to both of these people. He knew their abilities, and he praised them for being faithful in acting through those abilities. They both received the same reward. Now for the third guy. Uh, he's, he receives one talent, and instead of trying to use it to make the master more, he goes and he digs a hole, and he buries it in the ground, which is bizarre to us. We would never do that. But it was actually kind of normal in their day. There wasn't like a region's bank on every corner. And so if you had some valuables, it was pretty normal to just go in your backyard and dig a hole and bury it. So you would, hopefully you wouldn't lose it. But why did this third guy bury his money? Why didn't he try to invest it to benefit his master? Like he could have at least made some interest on it. That's what the master said. Says he was afraid of him, right? He says in verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. You reap where you did not sow, meaning other people planted crops and you go take those crops for yourself. He says, I was afraid. I didn't want to make a mistake, so I hid it so that nothing would happen to it. And here's the hard part. Verse 26, the master says, you wicked and slothful servant. For the longest time, I just assumed that he was calling this guy wicked and slothful because he didn't make him any money. But I don't think that's actually what he's saying here. He's calling him wicked and lazy because this servant is making up lies about his master. Right? He didn't do anything for the master while he was gone. He had been entrusted with a lot of money, and to, so to try to cover his own back, he straight up lies, and he tells the master how horrible he is. I think this might be the first historical example of gaslighting in literature that we have. Like, we're to get out of something, to get your way, you just, you're committed to a lie, and you're just going to double down on it. Because as we saw, this master, he's a good boss, isn't he? He knows his people, he trusts his people, he doesn't micromanage and send people to check on him. And when his people are faithful with what they've been given, according to their abilities, he's overjoyed to be back with them, isn't he? He delights in bringing them into his community. So in other words, the third servant, he just doesn't know the master. He doesn't know him. When you look at the New Testament and you see those passages that talk about 
God's judgment, when, God, when Jesus returns and people are judged, God is never pictured as saying, well, you just didn't do enough. You blew it. You did this thing too many times. You didn't do this. God never says that. But you know what, God, the reason that God does give for why some people are welcomed into his presence and why some are sent away and be separated forever? He says, you never knew me. He says, you didn't know me. I didn't know you. That's the reason why God gives us to why some people will spend eternity in darkness and separated from him and why some people will be in life and light and joy and in communion with the Father. Do you know God? He isn't wicked because he underperformed. He's wicked because he had every opportunity to know God and yet he doesn't know him. God just threw good gifts at him, was generous and he was intentional and patient. He gave him responsibility equal to his ability and the, the servant threw it all away. As verse 30 says, he was ordered to be cast into the outer darkness. You know, just once, I wish Jared would let me preach on like a happy, feel-good passage in scripture. Uh, this is heavy, this is difficult, and I know some of you are feeling really weighed down and overwhelmed right now. But y'all, Jesus loves you too much to let you and I just kind of go on business as usual not using the good gifts that he's given us for the benefit of others. Jesus loves you too much to not let you know God. If you're here this morning and maybe, you, you know, someone just asks you on the spot, what do you think of God? And the way you describe them is the way the third servant describes God. Hard, stern, scary, demanding. You know, please know that that is not who God is. God is love. God is truth. God is good, God is patient and kind and merciful. God has wrath and anger for sin that he will one day deal with, but his anger is just a subset of his love for his creation. When you think about anger, what causes your anger? It's when something you love is threatened, isn't it? When something you love is in danger of being taken away from you or hurt. And so when God who is perfect and without sin has his good creation broken by sin, He's rightfully angry. And there will not be peace between God and his creation until sin is dealt with. And so if God kind of embodies and is wrath and anger, you and I would not be here. We would already have been obliterated because of our sin. But God is not anger, God's love. And in his love, Jesus, God the Son, allowed himself to be cast into the outer darkness on the cross. Jesus took on himself every ounce of God's wrath and anger for sin, and he took the punishment that you and I deserve. In his love and his goodness, Jesus was cast into the outer darkness so that by faith, you and I could live in the joy and life and light of the Father. Amen? That is who God is. And if that is who God is, and if you are joyfully brought into his presence and his fellowship with him through faith in Jesus, what's our response? What, how can we be faithful in this restored relationship with God? What do we need to do in order, not in order to be made right with God, but because we have already been made right through faith, how do we respond? Maybe put another way, what do we need to try to do? I know in a, in a, in a church, in a room this size, a bunch of y'all have kind of really good ideas that are rolling around in your head, things that you really want to do for Jesus and for this church and for your community. Uh, maybe some of you have been wanting to kind of volunteer somewhere, but you just haven't made the time to do it. Maybe you've got some neighbors that you really like and you want to be in a good relationship with them, 
but you just haven't taken that next step to have a really intentional conversation with them. Uh, maybe some of you dream of your home just kind of being the central location in the neighborhood for people to come and the door's always open and there's always food on the table for them. You just wanna be a source of safety where people can come and eat and enjoy good, healthy conversation. Maybe there's a ministry that you have been uniquely gifted for, either in this church or in this city, but you just haven't taken the time to do it. You haven't gathered a few friends and just done it. Maybe there's some people in your work or in your school that you know need us a little extra love and attention. Just give it to them. To be faithful is to know God, and it is to use the good gifts that God has given you to encourage, to serve, to share the gospel with others, to comfort, to financially support, and to point others towards Jesus. So let me end just by reading a passage. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5. This is how Paul kind of ends one of his letters. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Be faithful with what God has given you, knowing how good and faithful he is towards you. Amen? And let me pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that before sin entered this world, uh, before anything else, you were love from all eternity. And we thank you for loving us, not when we were lovable, but just because you loved us. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, wiping us clean of every sin stain. We thank you for the full approval and acceptance we have. Or for those here who don't know what they believe, who are just testing the waters, would you use this church to show them your beauty and your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank you for the full approval and acceptance we have. Or for those here who don't know what they believe, who are just testing the waters, would you use this church to show them your beauty and your kindness and your goodness and your faithfulness? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.